Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Nala Ayed. Welcome to the second of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures, Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death and Accordions by the acclaimed Cree writer Thompson Highway. Indigenous mythologies, says Thompson Highway, provide unique, timeless solutions to our modern problems. Within the endless circle of life, the earth is a garden of joy unlimited. And the reason for existence is to have a blast, to laugh ourselves silly. At the center of that, in Indigenous mythology, is the figure of the trickster, zany, ridiculous and wise. A bit of a trickster himself. In these Massey lectures, Thompson Highway leads us on an exhilarating exploration of five themes at the center of the human condition. Language, creation, sex and gender, humor, and death. Thompson Highway is a Cree author, playwright, and musician. He wrote the plays The Res Sisters and Dry Lips Autumn Move to Kappa's Casing the best-selling novel Kiss of the Fur Queen, as well as children's books and a memoir, Permanent Astonishment. This year was the first since the pandemic that we were able to record the Massey Lectures on tour to Fredericton, St. John's, Saskatoon, Vancouver, and Toronto. This is the second in the series, recorded at Memorial University in St. John's, and it's titled On Creation. Here's Thompson Highland. Uh, we're on the radio, so I have to behave myself. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be here in, in the province of Newfoundland. And uh, I'd like to thank the, the, the people who brought me here, the CBC, the House of Anansi Press, who published the book, and, uh, and, and the uh, Massey College in Toronto. Those are the sponsors of the event, and I thank them heartily for bringing me here to this beautiful, beautiful province. And now, first chapter is on language. The third chapter is on, um, on humor. The fourth chapter is on sex and gender. The fifth chapter is on death. And the second chapter is called On Creation. And that's the chapter of beauty for you tonight. One winter night, some 40 years ago, a most unruly and spectacular celebration was transpiring in a room at a hotel in downtown Toronto. Unfortunately, at the time, I was ignorant of the signal event that so missed its madness, one that mounted as the evening progressed, or so they say. Then again, isn't this the case with all celebrations, that the madness mounts as the libations amass? It certainly is in the Native community. What makes our parties doubly unruly, however, and therefore doubly spectacular, is the fact that a clown god lives inside us. 
a spirit half human and half god, as is the case with all superheroes in all world mythologies. The difference is that our trickster has a sense of humor and a concupiscence that know no limit. So wild and unruly was the party that I speak of that unexpected visitors arrived at the door in a manner, well, unexpected. The thing was that my dear friend and colleague, Billy Boy Cutthroat, we'll call him, for the purpose of concealing his true identity, had been fueling the event with a liberal supply of some magical tobacco he always seemed to have on his person throughout those years. A substance that, by the way, is much more conducive to the health of indigenous communities across this country than alcohol has ever been. But back to this mystical steam which means tobacco in Cree. True to the nature of this trance-inducing substance, the party was rocking and rolling and raging and reeling when a rap on the door made all talk stop and tension strike. Police, shouted a reveler. At that point in Canadian history that I describe here, while people were still allowed to smoke cigarettes, that is, cigarettes made of regular tobacco, in the 1970s, possession of the drug, then known as marijuana, or weed or grass was a criminal offense. You could be thrown in prison to languish there for years just for having one joint in your pocket. Fortunately for us all today, we can enjoy it openly and legally. Unfortunately for my dear friend and colleague, Billy Boy Catro, he was forced by circumstance to engage in an act that transformed him into a myth. If not instantly, then over the course of the next three years. What did he do? The drug was so incendiary, so unsafe to have on one's person that he rushed to the window, pried it open with his usual panache, and jumped to his death. At least, that is what most eyewitnesses were under the impression he had just done. Killed himself, for he was never seen again. Or so went the gossip of one end of the land to the other. It didn't help, of course, that a good half of the guests in that room were stoned out of their minds. <laughs> out of their minds. So to add fuel to the fire, as is the way in our culture, the story was embellished to include the fact that our hero had jumped from a floor unheard of in the annals of history aboriginal. It was the 30th, so of course he died. In Cree, there are three words for the idea of narrative. The first is atsimui, which means to tell a story. That is, to tell the truth. The second, kedaskiwin, means to tell a lie. That is, to weave a web of fiction. And at a point exactly halfway between these two polar opposites stands atsilogiwin, which means to mythologize. That is, to weave a web of fiction. As I wondered, my way across Ontario and over the next three years, I traced the story from city to reserve to town and back to city, believing all along that Billy Boy Cutthroat had plunged to his death, that Billy Boy Cutthroat's spirit, one known for its strength, its lust, its indomitability, clung to a window ledge outside that window for hours, while the law enforcers turned the room inside out looking for evidence of criminal activity of the sort for which Billy Boy Cutthroat had gained through the years such glamorous notoriety. Over time, the 30th floor in that hotel room became the, night, the 25th, then the 20th, then the 15th, then the 10th, 
and so on, until some three years later, I finally ran into Mr. Cutthroat himself, live and in the flesh and in full control of his faculties in his home community in northwestern Ontario, some 600 kilometers north of the fabled city of Thunder Bay on Great Lakes Superior's tempestuous waters. (laughs) (laughs) By the time I got to the source of the myth that electrified my imagination, every time I thought of it, as it did for so many others, it turned out that the downtown hotel room had not been on the 30th, nor the 20th, nor the 10th, nor the 7th, nor even the 3rd. It had been on the 2nd. <laughs> and Billy Boy Cutthroat hadn't hung to that window ledge for hours. He had merely dropped to the ground, suffered a few minor scrapes and one sore ankle, then hobbled off down the alleyway, around the corner, and down the street to the nearest bar. That was the truth. That was the nonfiction. That was a chimuin. That the floor was the 30th was a lie. That was the fiction. That was outright kedaskiwin. At a point exactly halfway between these two conflicting narratives, that is, a point exactly halfway between the truth and the lie, sits the narrative I heard from perhaps the tenth teller of the tale a good three years before I caught up with my friend up north. By this tenth telling of the story, I had it firmly implanted inside my mind, in my subconscious, in my dream world, that plain old ordinary Billy Boy Cutthroat had not only sprung the fingernails of Superman himself, but he had also sprouted the wings of an angel, which was how he had managed to hover Holy Spirit-like high up in the air outside that window of what in my wildest imaginings was the 19th floor of some miraculous hotel room in downtown Toronto. If an angel is a kind of divinity of half man, half God, then so was my friend Billy Boy Cutthroat that night. That was the myth. That was a win. That was the magic. And that is precisely the region of the collective dream world, our collective subconscious, where men sprout wings, horses sprout wings, creatures half man and half horse walk this earth. That is the region of our lives where exist beings who are half man and half goat, half woman and half fish, half man and half coyote, half woman and half spider, where snakes talk to women, but not to men. Women give birth without having had sex, Dead men rise from the grave, where women and men too are half human and half divine. And an old man in the sky with a fearsome scowl and a long white beard can part Lake Ontario right down the middle with a wave of his golden thunderbolt so that Ontarians can go shopping in Rochester, New York (laughs) without first having had to pass through Buffalo, New York or Gananoque, Ontario or even Toronto's Pearson Airport. And anyone who dares to pursue them drowns in the waters of a heartless lake. And that's how my dear Wichiwagan, my friend, Billy Boy Cutthroat, got transformed from a man, which is the truth, to a god, which is the lie, but in the end was, and still is, both, which is the myth. Thus does he hover in the place where live such beings That is in the world of magic and mythology. 
Thompson Highway in St. John's, Newfoundland, with the second of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures. In St. John's, Thompson met with a group of Indigenous young people from First Light, a nonprofit working to revitalize Indigenous cultures and languages. From that conversation, here are Susan Onalek, Inuit from Nanitsiavut, and John Jedor, who is Mi'kmaq, talking about the importance of culture. I think in the context of storytelling and my culture, um, or I guess in Indigenous cultures, when I, when I think about storytelling, it's more about a process as opposed to, you know, facts. Um, I know that Thompson here wrote a book about the trickster, and what I find really interesting about the trickster is that it has meaning across different First Nations, Inuit, Métis cultures. And to me, it's not about did a raven turn into a man? Maybe. I wasn't there. I didn't see it yet. But I take from that there are things in this world that will fool us. It's something to look at how we learn and we process. It's that process of storytelling and, and I guess, reading between the lines or listening in the pauses that I really try and um, grasp from, if that makes sense. For me, um, culture and language are entwined. You know, the Mi'kmaq language is incredibly important to me because my grandfather instilled the importance of the language and how worldview is intertwined with language. They can't be separated. And when they take the language, they take who you are. And we all know the experiences of people having language taken from them and thus having their culture taken from them. And my grandfather used to say, the language will always be on the country. It's always in the trees. It's on the bogs. The Mi'kmaq language will stay there uh, because that's where it's been spoken since the time began. And he said they can take it from our reserve, they can take it from our school and our church, but we'll always speak it on the land. And, you know, that's the importance of going back to the land and spending time with the elders who walked on that land, who've conversed with the animals. It's like it's a part of the landscape. When they speak, it's like, it's like they're speaking with the animals. It's like it's, it's, it's the rivers. It's, it's a part of the, the, you know, the ground they walk on. And so when you take that, when you take the Mi'kmaq language, you're taking that part of the landscape. So I think it's so important that you, know, you teach your children the Mi'kmaq language because then you learn the way that when a Mi'kmaq person looks at the sky, you see what that Mi'kmaq person sees and not what you think a Mi'kmaq person would see when they see the sky or what a, a, a non-Mi'kmaq person would see when they see the sky. You know, you see the sun, you see the first dew on the, on the, on the leaf of the plant, uh, which is a part of the word we use when we say good morning, when we say well, you know, you refer to that first dew on the, on the leaf. It's that stuff, you know, it's, 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 that's, the, that's the essence of, of our identity as Mi'kmaq people. How did the place we know as the universe come into being? How did the planet known as Earth emerge from Atsimawin, pass through Kivaskiwin, and end up as Atsidogiwin, thus becoming the miraculous environment that it is today? What kind of god or angel or combination thereof was responsible for its creation? The youngest of the three mythologies I would discuss in these lectures is Christianity. The youngest in the sense that it came into its own only after its predecessors, the Greek and Roman systems, 
which we will call, for the sake of simplicity, classical mythology, had seen their glory. Certainly, the Christian way of thinking is the most familiar to the modern reader. The first point to know about this particular mythology is that the dream world it defines is monotheistic in structure. The god who arrived in the new world in 1492 came alone. He showed no sign of having a wife, a girlfriend, or even a mistress, meaning that he never had sex. The second point is that this one god is male, and male exclusively, with not one speck of feminine attribute, physical, emotional, biological, or otherwise. The idea of divinity in female form is absent entirely from this system. The third point is that he is perfect, flawless. There is not one thing wrong with him. Omniscient, he has been called, and omnipotent, omnipresent, omni-this, omni-that, omni-everything. Like Santa Claus, he knows when you're awake. <laughs> he knows if you've been bad or good. He knows everything, feels everything, can do everything, including putting an end to war, one would think. The fourth point is that he has been anthropomorphized by artists and paintings and sculptures, as well as by writers, which is why we know this god as a scowling old man, rearing from a swirl of angry clouds draped in what looks like a bedsheet and menacing us with a golden thunderbolt. The fifth point to note is that in this mythology, time is of the essence. Space, meaning the planet, the universe, our environment, meaning air, water, soil, vegetation, and all that sustains us is of little to no consequence. The sixth point is that Christian mythology defines a collective subconscious in which time is structured on governed and guided by the principles of one straight line that travels from point A to point B to point C. In the beginning was this void, this endless soupy mass of matter that pulsated and danced and swirled through the great dome of space. And from this great swirl of nothingness emerged a god, a kind of super angel, a kind of super billy boy cutthroat, who, first of all, was male, and male exclusively, and second, who gave birth by himself to the universe with its planets and its stars and its moons and the earth with its soil and its rock and its water and its untold trillions of molecules. In the act of creating this universe, there was no sexual act between two partners, no physical pleasure, no extended period of pregnancy, no biological process remotely conceivable. Poof! The world just happened in six short days. That was the beginning of time, the beginning of that straight line, on the first day of which this male god gave birth to light, on the second day to the atmosphere, and so on until on the sixth day he created man from a little ball of mud and woman from his rib bone. Apparently unnecessary to the act of creation, woman came as an afterthought. And the narrative goes on from there, the most salient feature being that this male god gave man the power to rule over nature, to exploit it, and to do with it as he pleased. The midpoint of that straight line is when this god's only son, being half divine and half human, appears on the earth with the purpose in mind of teaching human beings truth, love, and humble forgiveness. 
And at the end of that straight line comes Armageddon, the destruction of the universe by the same angel, the same God, the end of the earth, the end of time. At last, this male God gave us this earth as a gift and then snatched it away. The narrative of eviction from a garden because of a woman's engagement in an act of physical pleasure, the eating of an apple, is one that, so far as I know, exists in three mythologies and three only, Christian, Judaic, and Islamic. Not coincidentally, the world's three largest monotheistic mythologies. Space, in other words, meaning the Garden of Eden, the planet called Earth, was given to us and then taken away. Put another way, the umbilical cord that connected us to our mother, the Earth, was cut. And time is our curse. In that system, we don't live in the here and now. We don't belong here. Rather, we float about somewhere in a state of pure theory called chronology, an arrow of time that hurtles ever forward, day by day by day, straight to an ending called Armageddon. When I went for a recent walk with my daughter and her two children to the south bank of the Ottawa River, a five-minute stroll from where I live with my lifelong partner, her biological father, we stood on the shoreline to gaze at the sunset. There, before us, my two grandchildren, aged eight and ten, were splashing about on the melting spring ice in their little rubber boots, silhouetted against the pink and purple of the last rays of daylight. My daughter said to me in total earnest, I don't think that Marek and Milena will ever have children. What she was really saying was, I think we've arrived at the end. And it's true. Beautiful as it is, the Ottawa River is already dying. Because of industries such as pulp and paper upstream, it is radioactive, as are its fish. The second mythology under discussion here differs dramatically on all these points. Greek mythology, though born more or less during the same period as Christianity, bloomed much faster and died much sooner. Greek mythology, first of all, defines a collective subconscious that is polytheistic in structure. Humanity and the universe were created by many, poly, gods, theos. In this universe, that is to say, there exists not just one god, but many gods and many, many goddesses. In other words, the system has room for the idea of divinity in female form. An epidemic of divine fecundity suffices to say that in this dream world, there was a god of the sky, a goddess of the earth, a goddess of wisdom, a goddess of love, a god of death. In fact, there seems to be not one single twitch of the human organism and of nature for which the Greeks didn't have a god or a goddess. Trees were divinities named dryads. Rivers were goddesses known as naiads. Reeds by the river were gods. Sound was a cute little nymph called Echo, a god not seen but heard. There were the graces, there were the fates, there were the muses. The creation of the universe and the earth, moreover, was the result of a patently physical, biological act by an ancient male god whom few have ever heard of, but who some accounts say was a wind called Ophion, a wind who wound his immense physicality around a female force of energy called Uranomi, 
which copulative connection gave birth to the universe with its stars and its moons and its planets, including one that eventually came to be known as Earth. The universe and its contents, in other words, were born out of an act of sex, an act of patent, biological, and pleasurable reality. The king of all these deities, god of the sky Zeus, like the Christian god, brandishes a golden thunderbolt. And that is the god who arrived on the shores of what is now the Bahamas in October of 1492. Brandishing the thunderbolt he had stolen from the Roman king of the gods, Jupiter, who in turn had lifted it from an ancient Greek king of the gods, Zeus, he stepped off Christopher Columbus's good ship lollipop, the Santa Maria, and angry as hell, thundered, I am the only god. Why was he so angry? Well, wouldn't you be angry too if you hadn't had sex in 6,000 years? <laughs> the thunderbolt flashed, its thunder cracked, and the newly crowned king of the gods continued, anyone who dares worship another god will be destroyed. No wonder mom, a diehard Catholic, from age one day, was terrified of lightning. To appease its wrath, she would run out in the village to hang her rosary from the highest tree she could find in the immediate vicinity of our summer residence, which was always a canvas tent, except that in subarctic climates, the trees are not very tall, because in that area, we are getting close to the tree line. The tree line, that region of the world where trees stop growing to be taken over by the tundra, treeless land that sweeps clean across the length of Nunavut right up to the North Pole, a breathtaking vista, no matter how many times you see it. My father, Joe Highway, was tall and stately. He looked like a king. But my mother, Balazi Highway, was short and elfin and very funny. Though much prettier, she looked like Granny from the television series The Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> Thankfully, the trees we had were short as well, which meant one thing. Drenched to the bone by driving rain, Mum didn't have to reach very high to hang her rosary from the apex of the tree, generally a spruce. And her Catholic fate stood her in good stead, for she lived to the ripe old age of 88 and never once got struck by God's bolt of lightning. <laughs> she would say, which means... It's true, I never lie. <laughs> You're listening to the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures on Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thompson Highway is the 2022 CBC Massey Lecture. And in On Creation, the second lecture in the series, he asks the question, how did the place we know as the universe come into being? What kind of god or angel or combination thereof was responsible for its creation? For the ancient Greeks, the world was created through sex, and humans were not here to suffer, but to enjoy. Christianity offered something more linear, a beginning, middle, and end of things. Thompson Highway suggests that the indigenous worldview offers something else. He says, those who lived in ages before us, our mothers, our grandmothers, our great-great-grandmothers, our children who have died, our loved ones, they live here with us, still, today, in the very air we breathe. Here's Thompson Highway from Memorial University in St. John's. In Greek mythology, or at its story of creation, there was no sense of time, or at least no all-pervasive, obsessive sense of it. Nature came to fruition in no particular order. It just flourished over an unspecified period of time as one great act of pleasure, one great act of spectacular beauty. Space was much more important than time. And by space, I mean the land, the air, the water. Therefore, Greek mythology doesn't function according to the rigors of one straight line with the beginning of time, time in the middle, and the end of time. Nor does it function like a complete circle, but rather more like a circle interrupted, and thus a curve, a sort of grand semicircle. And the reason for this interruption is because of what happened politically, historically, militarily in that part of the world around the time of the birth of Christ. That point in time when Roman civilization had taken over from the Greeks and Christian mythology in its turn came to supplant Roman mythology. For mythologies, it would seem, have limited lifespans, limited periods of relevance. They're born, they flourish, they fade, they die, which is where new gods and or goddesses spring from a battlefield covered all too often in blood, ashes, and empty hulks of temples, of churches. When I was a boy, the feast called Christmas was all about Jesus. On ordinary Sundays, we altar boys would be four in number, wearing black cassocks and white surplices. But at special services such as Christmas, midnight mass, we would be a dozen, floating about like angels in our scarlet cassocks, Floyd white surplices embroidered with silk thread with kite-sized scarlet satin bows bursting from our necks, assisting Father Remy, the school principal, a glow in his white satin chasuble and damask embroidery. The altar, with its umpteen tall white candles, stood on a raised dais, covered with a white taffeta ceremonial cloth bordered in lace, graced by the golden showers that held Christ's blood, the wine, the golden ciborium that held his body, the hosts for communicants, the golden thurible that bore incense from which smoke billowed its intoxicating fragrance, the golden this, the golden that, all while a 200-voice choir, 100 girls, 100 boys, sang in four-part harmony of angels, of shepherds, of cows, of donkeys, of a manger with its infant a boy named Jesus. He and he alone was the focus of all this attention. Today, 
The Sacred Holiday is about an old white man with a big white beard and a belly the size of a stove, flying around the world on a sled pulled by nine flying reindeer. Christmas trees, dancing snowmen, presents, candy canes, candy, candy, and yet more candy, you name it. But there is not one single sign in all that circus of the Son of God or his birth. Same with Easter at the Guy Hill Indian Residential School. The celebration of Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter, started with a Palm Sunday when Jesus enters Jerusalem, surrounded by people waving branches from palm trees, and we were all given palms to hold through the service. Good Friday, when Jesus, in the guise of Father Remy, washed the feet of one of his apostles, in this case, the school janitor, say, or a teacher or a brother. The Stations of the Cross, when we altar boys would follow our Lord on high around the entire circumference of the school's church, bewailing the weight of his cross, wanting to help him, and weeping, yes, literally weeping, suffering with him at every stop he made on his way up the hill to his death. All this was topped off by a midnight mass, even more spectacular than the one at Christmas, as it led up to the morning of the miracle the one that underpins the entire superstructure that is Christian monotheism, the Lord's resurrection. We were in awe. The Greeks weren't here to apologize for meriting eviction from a garden because of an act of pleasure indulged in by a woman, which I would learn in catechism class at the Guy Hill Indian Residential School was the definition of the idea of original sin. Our catechism teacher, a skeletal young priest with orange hair that looked like shredded wheat, would tap his long wooden pointy here and there on the blackboard behind him, showing us the apple, showing us the snake, showing us the woman. The idea of original sin appeared to excite him, for he licked his lips. <laughs> and making us sing, in the great hereafter, O Lord of Lords, we'll see you there. Only years later, what I learned that the great hereafter the pink-skinned priest spoke of was, in fact, a time of pure and utter theory. It did not exist. The ancient Greeks, I would learn even more years later, lived not in the then, but in the now. And here in Canada, and only after years of plumbing the depths of indigenous spirituality, I add my own words. This space, our earth, is now. It is heaven, it is hell. It is what you make of it while you're here. Which brings us to the third and oldest mythology under consideration here, which is North American indigenous mythology. In indigenous mythology, there exists not one god, as in Christian mythology, not many gods, as in Greek mythology, but rather the concept of God in all, or God in everything. Not monotheistic, not polytheistic, North American indigenous mythology is, by contrast, pantheistic in structure. A pantheistic divinity created the universe. The system comes to us from a time before humankind began conceiving of divinity as having human form. Divine energy in this system has not been anthropomorphized. Not having left nature, it still lives inside it and with it. All of nature, from leaves to soil to the heart inside your body to the beloved inside your life, virtually all pulsate with divinity. A leaf on a tree 
a blade of grass, a fish in the water, that ray of sunlight that filters in through your kitchen window and falls in your arm, the wind that moves through your lungs, that's giving movement to your heart and veins and brain, all are divine energies, divine beings with a living, breathing soul. In Cree and other Algonquian languages, the world is mantu, meaning spirit. Not a ghost, but an energy, or ximantu, which means great spirit. Divinity in a pantheistic system is conceived of not as a man or a woman, but rather as an electrical bolt of energy that shoots through the universe and animating all that it passes through. If mythologists, theologists, and cosmologists call this principle pantheism, or God in all, then cellular biologists call it animism, or soul in all. Pantheism, that is to say, has its roots planted firmly in biological reality. According to its structure or its system, a bird has a soul, a rock has a soul, a woman has a soul. Which is not the case in monotheism. In monotheism, a tree is an it, a rock is an it, and for all the dignity bestowed on her, a woman might as well be an it. To push that question just one step further, a woman giving birth without having had sex, a male god giving birth to a planet by himself, that is, without collaboration from a feminine force, that is truth biological, that is biology, I don't think so. <laughs> Indigenous accounts of creation vary widely across the continent, as they did in ancient Greece, as they did in the ancient Middle East, but the general consensus, at least in Cree stories, is that the universe and its contents came into being as the result of the efforts of a female force of energy known as Omama. The Cree word for mother is mama, nemama, kemama, omamawa, meaning my mother, your mother, his, her mother. There is no gender in Cree. Interestingly enough, however, in this particular account, there appears to be no overwhelming evidence of masculine involvement in the process of procreation. This girl was endlessly sexual, endlessly sensual, endlessly fertile, a creature of pleasure, a creature of the flesh who gave birth in no particular order with no great fixation on the concept of time to many, many most wondrous and most beautiful things, including at the start of her narrative, this laughing, hysterically funny, totally outrageous, totally concupiscent clown called, in English, the trickster, who is half human and half God, like all superheroes in all mythologies the whole world over. Mother Earth also gave birth to women and then men as an afterthought, as they weren't really necessary to the act of creation. And mosquitoes, by the way, and black flies, and blood cells that don't quite always work out in the human bloodstream causing fatal illnesses. She is far from perfect, that is to say. Yes, she is beautiful. Yes, she is grand, and she is generous. She is bountiful. She is kind and ever-loving and supportive and affectionate. But like the mother goddess Hera in Greek mythology, when tried to the limit by the masculine side of her that is not quite in working order, she can be one jealous, furiously angry force from hell. She destroys with earthquakes, she destroys with hurricanes, she destroys with famine and starvation and drought and war and with all kinds of ailments, physical, emotional, mental and spiritual. But then she gives us trees, she gives us flowers, 
She gives us lakes, loons, red-winged blackbirds. She gives us sunsets, and she gives us wind. In the end, Mother Earth is beautiful and terrible, kind and gentle, and so is to be respected, revered, thanked. Thompson Highway in St. John's, Newfoundland, with the second of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures. From his discussion with a group of young people at First Light in St. John's, here again are Susan Onelik and John Jeddor, talking about the ways in which storytelling in their respective cultures has shaped the way they see the world. It can go in all different directions, but I mean, for me, in looking at the processes of storytelling um, and worldviews, it's not necessarily about the characters and stories that you know, Indigenous cultures kind of emphasize on. It's, it's about the lesson that the storyteller, or essentially a teacher, is trying to convey. Uh, this summer, my family often travels been to uh, northern Labrador and um, the Inuit legend of Iceberg Island outside of Nain. So there's a story there that uh, an Ungakuk, which is a shaman, and the story of Iceberg Island is that Ungakuks were testing their strength and turned an iceberg into an island. And um, whether or not that actually happened is irrelevant. It's, it's not necessarily about fact or fiction. The message there is that Ungakuks were, you know, strong. They were helpers. And now that island wasn't just a symbol of strength, but if you look at this island in different ways, it's supposed to help guide you on the sea whether or not that day is going to be a good day to travel. By looking at the island and observing, you know, if you can see the top of the island, then maybe it's going to be a good day to travel. So it's like a gift that keeps on giving, mm-hmm. right? And that's what storytelling to me is and how it shapes your worldview. But there's always a lesson, and that's what it means to me. I mean, I think it's important to know that our um, our stories aren't static, right? Um, and I think that's um, in confrontation with a lot of Western views of stories is that, like Susan said, um, you can hear four different forms of the same story. And sometimes the takeaway is the same, but they're, you know, it, it, they're different. And, and over time, because again, you know, we've been here since the beginning. So we've all we've had are our stories to pass down, right? Um, and everything from uh, what plants are medicinal, what plants are to avoid, to being wary of you know the Wigalatamuj in the woods, right? Like that's stuff that uh, that has come down thousands and thousands of years, which has always been again as someone in science or someone you know who practices medicine, there sometimes becomes a crossroad, or I can see where people not from where I'm from have uh, like this cognitive dissonance where they think that our science is wrong science or, or our medicine is wrong medicine because we don't have empirical data, we don't have randomized control trials. We got thousands of years mm-hmm. on this land, you know, and we, we didn't just survive, we thrived. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me because we only had issues when you folks showed up, you know, and so I mean, uh, um, yeah, um, so that has been, a, you know, an issue for me. But I grew up around these stories, and, you know. I grew up, uh, you know. There's certain ways you prepare these medicines, and uh, and uh, and I was lucky because I was taught these things early. And if it wasn't for 
the people that came before me who knew how to do these things, we wouldn't have that piece of, of the puzzle or the piece of our identity. So I think the, the main thing is just respecting that our stories aren't static and respecting uh, the resilience of our stories uh, to be passed down through you know, thousands of years of people who've made this land their home and have learned how, again, not just to survive, but to work along and thrive with the animals and, and, and the landscape. On Reindeer Lake in Northern Manitoba, where my home village of Brochet sits like a cherry at its top, the first two weeks of August are a dream from heaven. When the summer is at its height, its waters are as kind as Jesus, its 5,000 islands glimmer with a beauty so intense that it hurts the eyes to look upon them. Sandy Lake, for instance, is a two-kilometer-long crescent shaped like a boomerang, little more than a sandbar with two powder-fine gold sand beaches on both its north and south sides. Flanked by small forests at both ends, it looks like a barbell. That summer I was five and that summer I was ten, we lived there. Imagine camping out with your parents for two months every summer in the most stunning place on earth. Two months! As a nomadic people, we lived on different islands on Reindeer Lake and on different lakes between that lake and the Nunavut border, a distance of some 250 kilometers with 10,000 lakes between them. 10,000. And this being August, there were no bugs and no people. Just you and your family, that was Mother Earth at her most generous, her most loving. That's when you would hear her breathe, hear her hum. But one kilometer to the west floated a much larger island, this one called Boundary Island, because it straddled the Manitoba-Saskatchewan border, and beyond it stretched a huge expanse of open water with no islands, the only respite from which was Porcupine Point, jutting out from the mainland on the Manitoba side some 10 kilometers away. We'd stand on the rock the size of a house at the far western tip of Boundary Island, my younger brother and I, and look with a mixture of longing and fear because it was always a gamble to cross that span in our little 10-horsepower outboard motor before a wind swooped in from nowhere and within seconds, with the might of a tornado, whipped the glass-smooth water into waves high as houses to drown us. Every summer, there were drownings on that stretch of lake. My school friend, Raphael Halkett, 18 at the time, and his 16-year-old wife, Mary Rose, six months pregnant with their first child, were devoured by the might of stunning omnivorous reindeer lake mere meters before they reached Brochet this one September. There, on that shore, the two sets of parents wept in silence for months that was Mother Earth at her most cruel. In another story, two young men of some 30 summers were crossing Reindeer Lake in October. You never cross Reindeer Lake in October. That's when the wind is at its most powerful, the waves at their most treacherous. From island to mainland on another part of the lake, their canoe weighted down with their fishing nets, their intention to put them away for that season. With 100 lead singers per net, small as adult human fingers, but nonetheless each as heavy as a hammer, and at least 50 nets on board, the canoe was already near sinking when they started out. A wind came along, the waves got higher, the boat sank. The next morning, or it might have been two, three days later, both men were found washed up and lying stark naked on a beautiful beach, frozen rock solid. That was Mother Earth at her most heartless. 
Next, if time in Greek mythology plays second fiddle to space in the great scheme of things, then the distance or gap between time and that space in indigenous mythology is of even greater width, even greater breadth. In fact, that gap is one huge chasm that is all but unbridgeable. If time lords it over space with complete power in Christian mythology, then space lords it over time with complete power in indigenous mythology. If time in Christian mythology is conceived of as one straight line, an arrow that travels with speed accelerating from point A to point B to point C and ends there abruptly, then time in indigenous mythology is one vast circle. And within that circle, within that womb, to give the notion some visceral perspective, lies the great expanse of space, the vast expanse of land, the vast expanse of ocean, the vast expanse of air, of sunlight, of lake. Up here in Canada, of lakes unlimited, of forests unlimited, of wildlife unlimited, of a garden of pleasure, a garden of joy unlimited, and of beauty unlimited and most, most wondrous. And on that circle, There is no beginning, there is no middle, and most significantly, there is no end. Existence in the universe is merely one endless circle of birth and life and death and rebirth and life and death so that those who lived in ages before us, our mothers, our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers, our children who've died, our loved ones, They live here with us, still, today, in the very air we breathe, in the shimmer of a leaf on that maple tree, in that shaft of sunlight that drifts in through your kitchen window and lands on your wrist, in your very skin, your mothers, in your very blood, your fathers, in your very voice, your sisters or your aunts, they are here. Tears of joy are to be shed, yes, of rampant celebration. Last comes the notion of paradise, of the Garden of Eden. In indigenous mythology, there is no such tale, no such narrative of eviction from what, in effect, is the human body until the day we die, just as there is none in its Greek counterpart. According to that narrative, the way that dream world, that collective subconscious is structured, we are still in that garden. At the very least, the Greeks were honest about the biological reality, both divine and human, of the singular act of sex, of the passing from one body to another of a certain essential liquid. Blood, sweat, and tears are the very least of the great design and of rampant electrical, physical pleasure. Many parts of the world may be parched, treeless deserts, cursed by drought, by human errors such as damming, by increasingly omnivorous raging wildfires, by floods, by an angry male god who has never had sex. But Canada, our home and native land, is not. Rather, is she the most spectacular, beautiful country on earth. Our garden is not a curse from an angry male god, but rather a gift from a benevolent female god. And the great tree of knowledge, Well, in Christian mythology, we as a species are not to partake of the fruit of that tree. Only God has that right. In Greek and indigenous mythologies, by contrast, that's why it's there, right there in the middle of the garden. That is the human body for us to partake of, for us to enjoy, for us to celebrate day in and day out. Science, in all its brilliance, from quantum physics to cellular biology, has never been able to explain 
where the impulse of that first cell in the universe came from. And neither has religion, in all its incredible complexity, been able to explain adequately just where the life force of the common human being originates, where the movement inside that first cell, inside that human body, comes from. A new language, therefore, had to be invented by the visionaries, the priests, the shaman of our respective societies to articulate that origin, and that language is mythology the exact halfway point between science and religion, that most elaborate of all fictions. At Chidogiwen, the exact halfway point between Achimowen and Kedaskiwen. The language needed to describe a dream world where exists men with wings, horses with wings, where creatures half man and half god walk the earth, just like the god Pan or Wisagajak, the great Greek trickster, where snakes talk to women, but not for some reason to men. Women give birth without having had sex. Dead men rise from the grave, and women, and men too, like my dear friend Billy Boy Cutthroat, are at one and the same time both human and divine. And that's it. Thank you. You've been listening to On Creation, the second of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures, Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death, and Accordions by Thompson Highway. Also on the program, Susan Onelik and John Jedor, part of a group discussion with First Light, a nonprofit organization in St. John's, Newfoundland, working to revitalize Indigenous language and culture. Also in that discussion were Amina Harlick and Jenny Williams. And the discussion was moderated by Salome Barker. Our thanks to all of them. The entire 2022 CBC Massey Lecture Series will be on our website, cbc.ca slash Masseys. And you can also download the podcast from our podcast page. Your local bookseller will have the book version of the lectures, Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death and Accordions, published by House of Anansi Press. That music you're listening to, by the way, is written by Thompson Highway. It's from his latest album, Cree Country, which, as the title suggests, is a collection of country music-styled songs sung in Cree by Patricia Cano. Our partners in the Massey Lecture Series are Massey College at the University of Toronto and House of Anansi Press. The Massey Lectures series is produced by Philip Coulter. Online production by Althea Manison, Ben Shannon, Sinisha Jolich, and Paul Gorbold. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of the Massey Lectures and Ideas is Greg Kelly and I'm Nala Ayan. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.